Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, good morning, good morning. Everyone go ahead and move back to your seats. I'm going to put this. Good morning. Good to see all of you. It's so exciting to have people actually up front. If you're new or you haven't been coming for very long, we have a tendency. People come in, they get intimidated by the dark, and then they just move farther back into the dark. So I preach to about like six empty seats, and then there's some vague shapes in the back. Um, but welcome, everybody. It's so good to have you here. And uh, for anybody who's online, we're, oh, we're having technical difficulties with the audio, and there's... It's working now? Oh, praise the Lamb. Okay, well, welcome everybody that's online. <laughs> oh, man, the devil will get us in any way he can, right? Especially through technology. Um, welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. If uh, this is your first time, if it's your hundredth time, that doesn't change. Um, I am always the same person, or endeavoring to be. Um, and today is a wonderful day uh, in the church calendar because it's Easter Sunday, a.k.a. Resurrection Sunday, or the Pascha, if you want to be real, real fancy. Um, and we've been on this journey this year, our vision for the year. So what we do as a leadership team, we gather together in October of, of 2020. Uh, we pray, we ask the Lord to give each of us a vision or a word or a scripture, and then we, we look at all of that, we kind of lay it out on the table and then discern through that what is it that God wants for our church in the next year. Um, so we tend to take vision a little bit more, kind of the attitude of like Israel in the desert. What's the, just the next thing, the next place where we're continually learning how to rely on God to lead us so that we don't get far ahead of him, right? Because as human beings, we have this tendency, give me the five-year, the 10-year plan, let's crush it, let's do this, here's the, the points for growth and all that. Like, it's fine if you're running a, a Fortune 500 company, I don't think that's exactly what church is for. And so we asked the Lord for a vision, and we kind of, it collated into um, all our allegiance to King Jesus. And so this whole year, we've been dedicating to kind of activating what faith means. That many of us have grown up with this understanding of faith being something kind of passive. It's this, it's trust. And, and usually what happens is trust is, you know, here's some, some tenets of the faith, here's some ideas that I'm supposed to believe in, and I kind of give them my stamp of approval, and then I twiddle my thumbs for 70 or 80 years, and then I go to heaven at the pearly gates, there's a quiz, and St. Peter gives me this quiz, and he says, what's John 3.16? And he goes, okay, you got that right, explain the Trinity, and then we're all trapped because that's bananas. And, it, and that's what we think it means to have faith. Faith is like a substance, it's intellectual, it's relatively passive. And we've been on this journey this year of seeing what if faith is more about our full-bodied allegiance. Everything that we are as a person is being gathered up behind King Jesus. So not only is it intellectual, it's emotional, it's physical, it's our bodies, it's spiritual. Every part of who we are is, is behind Jesus and following him wherever he leads us. That we recognize in our baptism when we have been saved, we are being saved into his kingdom. 
which is our new citizenship. This is our new homeland. And the rest of our lives is learning how to live in our new home, how to speak the language, how to behave as the natives so that we might be considered somebody who's actually from that place. And it's been a wonderful journey so far as we've like, focused in on the kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, seeing what, is, what does kingdom living look like and how does that speak to us about who the king really is. And then last week, looking at Palm Sunday, Jesus' last week um, of life before his crucifixion, and seeing that Jesus is allegiant to God to do what God has called him to do, even when we aren't. So last week, we looked at how people continually walked away, this triumphal entry of Jesus uh, into Jerusalem, everybody anticipating the coming of the king, the Messiah, but slowly everybody begins to abandon him and walk away. Yet Jesus is faithful in the midst of that to do what God has called him to do. And he always welcomes us back into that. He always welcomes us home. Even when we falter in our allegiance to him, he never fails in his allegiance to us. And so that brings us to today, um, Easter Sunday, 2021, Resurrection Sunday, that King Jesus is triumphant over sin and death, leading the procession into new life for all of us. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to enter into the scriptures. So Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and you are alive. You're not an idea. You're not a concept. You're not somebody that we just remember 2,000 years ago and wasn't that nice, and maybe we can be inspired by your life. We believe that you are real and that you are living and that you are present in this place. We believe that even right now you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you hold all of this together, that you are working out all things for our good, and that someday you will hand it all over to the Father when you have finished what you started on the cross 2,000 years ago. And King Jesus, we all come into this place with varying degrees of, of living into that reality. For some of us, you're so close, we feel like we can reach out and touch you. For others of us, we're maybe even wondering if this story is just too good to be true. And yet you beg us, come, sit at my feet, sup with me. And so that's why we're here, Lord. Would you send your spirit to open up our minds to receive truth anew? Would you open our hearts to receive your presence, your loving presence? Would you open us up one to another that we would be the faithful people of God that you're calling us to be? So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today, we're going to be looking at a pretty sizable piece of Scripture. I love public reading of Scripture. I think there's something that happens there where, especially when we take a larger piece and we're following a bigger idea or a bigger story, um, that maybe we don't get it all in the first time, but it's as we're continually immersed in the Scriptures that the Spirit begins to do something in us. So today, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 28. So you'll be able to read that up on the screens, or you can read along in your Bibles, because I'm sure you all uh, brought those uh, for comparison's sake. So this is kind of long, and I want to just, I'm going to make a couple observations as we go through, um, but the big thing that we're really going to be focusing on is what we mean when we say resurrection. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So even here at the beginning, Paul is saying, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I proclaim to you and that you have received it, and by it you are saved. And I love this in Paul. He's always saying things like, you have been saved, you are being saved, and someday you shall be saved. Because for Paul, it was never a one-and-done thing. It's not say the prayer, cross yourself correctly, and then just twiddle your thumbs until you die. Your salvation is something that is continually being worked out in you because the word for salvation, it it means rescue, but it also means healing, it means wholeness, it means gathering up all these broken pieces of who you are, been shattered by the world, being shattered by evil, and he's patching you together. And that's a lifetime of work because the Spirit of God never coerces or forces himself. He only is welcomed in. And redemption takes a lot longer than scrapping everything about who you are and starting over. But to God, it's worth it. And so when Paul says, this gospel, you are being saved if you hold firmly, there's some sort of beckoning for us to continually come back to that truth of the gospel, to allow it to wash over ourselves again, to actively participate in it, to see our own salvation. And so Paul's going to tell us when he says gospel, this is what he means. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, so this is the first thing that you should know. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Isn't that interesting? Like Paul is kind of saying, hey, you, you know these people. This isn't some sort of weird story somebody made up to explain why our revolutionary leader died. There's, there's a bunch of people still alive today that you can go and knock on their door and be like, hey, Emmaus, is this thing true? And he's like, yeah, I remember. It was crazy. And he tells you this story. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' little brother, Bishop of Jerusalem, Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I love that. What a weird phrase. This is what Paul's saying, basically. Jesus appeared in the flesh, in his resurrection fresh, to the 12, to these 500, and then later on... Paul, who was Saul at the time, remember he was a kind of a you know, first century terrorist, he's like attacking Christians, he's murdering them because that's what his Bible told him to do, right? And then he has this radical encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where he's knocked off his horse and he's blinded and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so what Paul is doing is he's laying claim to having met the resurrected Jesus, just not in the way that everybody else did. So he says, I'm kind of one abnormally born. He's saying kind of like, I, basically the language is like, I, I'm a, I, I was a preemie. I, like, I wasn't fully formed. I met him. It was weird. But I still lay claim to my experience of the risen Jesus. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. How many of you feel that way sometimes? You're like, I don't even deserve it. I don't even deserve to be here. I don't know why I'm here. Why didn't I get to sit in the back? That's where we put all the rejects. And Evan, hi, Evan. He's so sweet. He was just sitting in a chair, just like staring at his dad. He's so cute. He says, I, and this is what's crazy to me. He's like, okay, I don't even deserve this. But if there's one thing I've learned from God, 
it has nothing to do with what I think that I deserve. That's how God's grace works. So whether or not, whether you're like the most entitled jerk on the planet and you think that God owes you everything, or you think that you're a piece of scum, like you're that Psalm 22, like I am a worm and not a man, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to God's grace. He does not care. He cares what you think about you. It doesn't determine what he thinks about you. And that's what God's grace is. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That was not a very popular idea in the first century. People don't just get out of graves, okay? It doesn't happen. Or maybe they did like what we do. Oh, it was a spiritual resurrection. He was resurrected in our hearts, which is a very nice sentiment. But Paul's going to challenge that right here. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be a false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. Let me read that last one again. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. One of the main indicators of Christians in the first centuries was there was a bunch of weirdos who thought that God was actually going to raise them from the dead. That was one of the primary things that all the other pagan societies looked at this little sect of kind of branched off of Judaism and they're like, they're really weird. They've got a really strange sexual ethic and they're really dedicated to this idea of resurrection from the dead. And I just wonder in the modern church how many of us like, are really adamant, like really passionate about the resurrection of the dead. If we just kind of go, oh, I don't know, it just seems weird. Whatever, that's some weird thing they talk about. Let's just get back on to like, learning how to manage my finances because that's what Christianity is about. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, this side of the grave, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because guess what? Lean in real quick. Being a Christian is really hard. What? Wait a minute. You mean I don't just go from glory to glory and everything just comes to me naturally? You mean I actually have to like die to myself every day and I don't get what I want out of life? Wow, that's weird. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is kind of a, a biblical word. It's like the, the, the first and best and the sign of what is to come. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Oh my gosh, it's so dense. We could spend weeks just here. But here's a couple observations, okay? This is where I kind of want to start with this. The good news of Easter is a proclamation that everything is different because Jesus is risen from the dead, followed by an invitation to follow him. Okay, so what is the good news? It is not the good advice of Jesus. It is not the Bible is a handbook for life and whenever you enter into this weird thing, turn to page 256 and just follow the rules. That's not the good news. The good news is a proclamation. Hey, this is what has happened. God has now done this through Jesus. He died for our sins. He was resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, which kind of gives it the validity. And now everything is different because of that good news. So Paul is telling us the story itself is the gospel. Now see, you and I, we've been conditioned to this thing because in our, in our culture, in our society, that's not practical. Stories aren't practical. It doesn't tell me how to live a better life. It doesn't tell me how to be more successful. It, in fact, the story doesn't necessarily automatically do anything for me. It's just what is. But for Paul, for Cephas, Peter, for James, for those early apostles, those early disciples. It was the story that was saving the world. It was the proclamation, this is the story. And then the invitation on the other side of the gospel, are you going to lean into that? Are you going to allow that story to wash over you, to do its magic? And why is that good news? The resurrection is good news because it vindicated, which is a very fancy term to say, it proved that Jesus was who God said that Jesus was. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, he would have been an excellent teacher. He would have been a decent revolutionary, kind of failed at that. If he had died, maybe we'd be inspired by him like we are by so many in the past. We would have been inspired by his life, by his words. But he's more than that. The resurrection is good news because it vindicates Jesus as the king of the universe. That because he was raised from the dead, God is saying, aha, he is who he, I said he was. That death and sin and evil have done their absolute worst. He took it all upon himself. But rather than fighting back, he took that all to the grave. He descended into hell itself. And then he was raised on the third day. And what we see in Paul here and what we hear in those, those first hearers of the gospel is that sin as our rebellion against God, what we do when we try to take the matters into our own hands. And by the way, I was talking to somebody about this this week. Sin is, you know, a very tricky thing uh, to, to talk about and to define and all of that. 90% of the time that you sin, it's out of the really good intentions, okay? So just understand that. Like, human beings, we sin because we think that it's our job to fix the world. 
and we're going to take matters into our own hands. This is what we look at when the Tower of Babel, for example. They had a really great idea. Let's make the world awesome. Let's build a civilization. Like us rising up to God's level is basically the same thing as him doing it himself, right? And so this is what we see, and this is what we've been talking about this, this whole week through Holy, like through Holy Week, is seeing this story where human beings try to fix the world, try to order the world, and that's where the powers and the authorities come in. We build human structures that end up serving the people at the top, but kind of like taking advantage of the people at the bottom, and we call that justice. And then we just project onto God all of our assumptions of how he's going to save the world. And we think that God's just going to come in with a bigger stick and he's going to beat us up and he's going to like wrestle the world into submission because God was so fed up with the world that he sent his only begotten son to sort everything out. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be. But no, we see in this a God who makes himself powerless makes himself nothing, allows sin and death to do its worst, sin being our rebellion against God when we try to do things our own way, death being the consequence of that. And these major enemies of sin and death are triumphed over by the resurrection because sin and death are the culmination of these powers and these principalities, these ruling authorities and all dominion. And I've talked about this many times. We've got the kind of unholy trinity, the flesh, which is our human nature, our sinful nature, the enemy, which is you know, almost like evil embodied in the Satan and, and in the demonic, and then the world, these power structures that are present now, governments and, and societal assumptions that kind of keep people in bondage and prevent them from understanding who they truly are and who they were truly created to be. Jesus triumphs over all of those things because that's what the cross was, was all of those things doing their absolute worst to him. And him absorbing all of that, not fighting back, not bringing a bigger stick, but taking all of that and then taking it into hell and putting it to death. So all of these things are overcome. And for Paul, that was perhaps the biggest indicator of the power of the gospel message. We'd see it similarly in in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh... We'll talk about uncircumcision later and what that means. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And this is the line. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Jesus leads this procession. What would happen in ancient times is that, that Caesar would enter into the city in this triumphant procession because Caesar has overcome his enemies and he'd come in and he'd have all of his soldiers coming behind him and they're cheering his name and they're yelling. And then there'd be a tri- like a procession of all of the slaves. Everybody that Caesar had conquered, Pax Romana, peace through strength. And that was the indication that Caesar was who he really was. And there's another procession, there's a new procession in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, and that is King Jesus coming in with his spoils. But who is he making a mockery of? Sin and death, the powers and the authorities, the rulers of this age. And Paul says, guess what? Everything is being put under his feet. Everything. Everything. Think of a country in your head. Boom. Under his feet. Think of your favorite president. Boom. Under his feet. Think of your least favorite president. Boom. Also under his feet. All of it. The American dollar. Under his feet. 
Wall Street, under his feet, doesn't matter. Every single thing in creation, under, in heaven and on earth, on earth, has been submitted to Jesus because he was vindicated in his resurrection. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So what is the result of this good news? One of the major indicators of the procession into new life is the new family of God, of those who have heard the good news, whom it has washed over. They have been taken by it. They have been captured by it. And that they are brought into this new family. As I've said many times, old Uncle Stanley Hauerwas saying that the church is the place where God is making a family out of strangers. And one of the indicators of this new resurrection life is this happening right now. Where you're in a room with people that you probably don't like. Like you looked across the room when they came in and yeah, they look nice in their dress or tie. But you're like, ugh, why did they get to be here? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because one of the practicalities of overcoming sin and death and all of disarming all of the powers and the authorities is disassembling the human structures that keep us separated from one another. Whereas human beings, when we try to fix the world, we begin to rank people according to their value. That if you're pretty enough and you're smart enough and you have the right skin color and you have the right gender and you have enough money in your bank, then you somehow are more favored by God, a.k.a. the man, And then if you don't have all of those things, well, sorry, you don't get to play. You don't get to show up at the table. And one of the most powerful indicators to me of the truth of the resurrection is what's happening in this room right now. That were it not for Christ, none of us would have been brought together in this place. Where there is no Jew nor Greek, where there is no slave nor free, where there is no male and female. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so the result of the good news is the new family of God, this new world that's bubbling up in the midst of the old one. Where our meeting together, our worshiping Jesus as king is active rebellion against the powers and the principalities. It's active rebellion against the systems of the world that would seek to keep us divided, that would seek to keep us down, that would seek to devalue us, to tell us we are what we consume, we are what we do, we are what other people think about us. And to be the church is a powerful rebellion to stand up against those things and to say no more, no more. There is a new world bursting forth in the midst of the old one and we're here to bear witness to that. I love this idea that Jesus takes sin and death into his body and he descends into hell and he puts those things to death and then he rescues, we call it the harrowing of hell. What a great word, we don't use it enough. The harrowing of hell, that he rescues everybody out of hell because the things that have kept them locked up for too long no longer apply. This is a, uh, an ancient icon. It has several different names. It's called the Anastasis. It's called the descent into Hades or hell. And it's also called the, the harrowing of hell. And in it, we see what our Orthodox brothers and sisters in the East actually consider to be the, the central reality of uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 
That it wasn't just about, you know, in the West, we tend to think of your legal indebtedness, which is a real part of this, that uh, you as an individual, you are guilty, Jesus paid the, for your sins, and now you're free. That's, that's one part of it. But for them, it's you were dead. Not only were you dead, everybody was dead. We were all dead. We were like, we're either we're in hell or we're on our way to hell. We're locked up. We are dead. And it's because of the sin of Adam. That's what Paul's pointing to here. And so for them in the East, it's Jesus went down there, took everybody by the hand and said, nope, and brought them back to life. And so what we see here, this is a picture of Jesus taking Adam and Eve by the hand, our, our, our mother and our father, the proverbial first humans that were in complete union with God, were in life in him, but because of sin and rebellion, uh, were kind of locked out of Eden. He takes them by the hand, he pulls them up out of the grave. And on one side of Jesus, we see all these people, like his ancestors, the, the line of, of David and Solomon and others who, like, that God was protecting and guiding until this point that he could bring about the, the Messiah. And on his left, we see all of these Old Testament characters, the people that had gone before that had a partial view of what God was like, but they didn't have it all. And it was like these, they were, their writings are like these signposts in the mist as we read the Torah, as we read the prophets. And they're like, God's going to do something, and I think it's going to look like this, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, all of those people were locked up until Jesus came and said, no more. So what I want to do is actually, we're just going to take two minutes, and, and we leave that up, um, and we're going to just kind of meditate on this icon. That's what these images are for. These religious images help us to enter into story. Because it's, it's tapping into a different part of our brain from when we're doing the analysis. You know, when we come to scriptures often, we're, we're analytical and we're like, oh, what's that word mean, that phrase and everything. But a, an image like a story, it washes over us and it impresses something on us that's a little bit deeper than just that analytical mind. So um, we're just going to take two minutes uh, and I just want you to, to, to gaze upon this image of the descent into hell, and to see what the Lord might be showing you. And, and, the, and just trust that the things that your eye is being drawn to are the things that God wants to reveal to you on this Easter Sunday. So let's just take two minutes uh, and meditate.
Amen. And so the resurrection is a vindication by God of Jesus to say Jesus is who I said that he was. And in the resurrection, Jesus is undoing the curse of Adam and Eve, of sin and the consequence of death. And he's offering the world salvation both as rescue and as healing of entering into a new life, a new world that's bursting forth in the middle of this old one, where Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection, but we too follow him into that new world. And as I was thinking about this year especially, and as Jenna pointed out, you know, Easter Sunday last year was one of our first Sundays that we didn't actually get to meet. We had to kind of scramble to get everything online and everything that happened. And it's so funny because I was looking through some, some emails and, and we were emailing about it. Uh, Daniel, I don't remember if you remember this. We were like emailing. We're just like, oh, well, we're just going to do the prescribed eight weeks online and then we'll come back. Ha, 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 ha. What? How many of you thought that? I thought that. I was like, yeah, eight weeks, whatever. It'll be fine. And then it kept coming and coming. And, it, and, and we were doing so well at the beginning and there was just like sunshine and buttercups and we were all staying home and we were doing our part and then it kept happening. And we're like, okay, this is fun. All right, let's move on. I mastered my banana bread. And it kept happening and it kept happening. And we're like, my God, when is this going to be over? Because let's be honest, as Americans, we don't like the fact that we can't get over stuff that we can't just move on. And we're still in it. And what does it mean to be here on Resurrection Sunday in 2021, kind of sitting with this year where we haven't, we're not, we're, like, we're getting there, but we haven't moved on. And, and so many of us, we're trying to rush to the end that maybe we miss what God's doing in the moment right now. I think it's that we recognize that this has been a year of death. This has been a year of death. And do we have the courage to hope for resurrection, not as a way to avoid death, but to pass through it to new life? Let's see if we can have that on the screen. Do we have the courage to hope for resurrection, real resurrection, not as a way to avoid death, because if we're honest, that's how we're so often programmed. We want Easter Sunday, and we want to just squint your eyes and clench your fists and just kind of get through it, and then we'll get to the hope and the resurrection and the joy and the Easter eggs and all the goodness and leave behind us all the icky stuff. But that's not resurrection. That's not resurrection. That's just rearranging the, the, um, the furniture on the Titanic. Because if we don't know how to pass through Good Friday and Holy Saturday, that tension between life and death, to allow ourselves to grieve, to experience loss, we cannot lay claim to the hope of Easter Sunday. And this past year, we've been going through this collectively. First, there was life, but it was life as we knew it. It was life where we were under the illusion that we had things in control. It was life that had this illusion of our own self-absorption. That at the end of the day, it's just about me and Jesus and what I want. And he's kind of this giant ATM in the sky that gives me all of my heart's desires. It was life of entitlement. 
and privilege that I get to decide who I am and I get to decide what I want out of life and I take the bull by the horns and I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I just do the program so that I think better or whatever it was. Like we all had this illusion. Yeah, it was life, but there was a lot of illusion of control in that. And then death came. And then death came. And the first thing to go was our comfort, right? And there was, a, there was, a, there was an element of like newness and, and strangeness that kind of kept us curious. But then that began to dissipate. And then in the midst of this pandemic, our country got turned upside down because we were all staying home and we were on the internet and we had time to slow down and we had time to actually think and we had time to feel. And we saw one of the, the most vitriolic political seasons that our country has ever seen in at least two or three generations. And then we saw a massive reckoning on race. And all of a sudden, all of our illusions about how the world is supposed to be because we're good little Christian boys and girls came crashing down. And we had to confront some real death, some real death of those illusions, our sense of control, these hollow philosophies that because of our privilege kept us afloat in the before times. And then we experienced real death. Where we're at today, 554,000 people have died in this pandemic. And how many of us, we denied the numbers and we denied them and we denied them. And we, get, we, we listened to any possible voice we could that would explain away what was happening until it became somebody we knew. Or until we actually got it. Because we're so selfish We're so selfish that we will hold on to everything we can to maintain life before resurrection because it worked for us, because we liked it, because we could just turn off the television, because we don't have to pay attention if we don't want to. And it kept going, and it kept happening, and it was on our doorstep, and it still is Every day we were confronted with death. And so many of us still choose to ignore it. To find the sayings, to find the voices, to find whatever it is that will help us to not have to deal with the fact that everything has changed. But if we do not pass through the reality of death in this world, we cannot lay claim to resurrection. All we're doing is we're just painting Easter eggs on all of the stuff from the before times. And that's not new life. That's not kingdom. But if we allow it, if we allow Jesus to take us by the hand and to lead us through death, not avoiding it, not hopping over it, but actually passing through death because he has taken the sting from death. Oh, death, where is thy sting? We find on the other line that there is a new world. There is a new possibility where God is king 
And in this new world, we find devotion to one another. We find affection. We find steadfast commitment to the well-being of other people. We find that all of our priorities in life have been rearranged. No longer are we living for ourselves, but we live for God. We live for others. We find a deep sense of interconnectedness with one another. We find that our lives have purpose. They have meaning. We start to pursue justice as God defines justice. We begin to show mercy as God defines mercy. But we cannot enter into that world until we've allowed some things to die. And so even today, what we're, what we're considering is that we have to learn the art of asking the questions of God in the moment to say, what are you saying right now? What are you doing? And this is where our allegiance plays in. Our dedication to King Jesus. Are we going to let him lead us into new life? Are we going to hold on to the one that we had? Are we going to hold on to the old power structures and the old dominion because it kind of worked for us? Are we going to let all of that die so that we could enter into his kingdom, into his new life? And so sometimes it just, it seems crazy to talk about resurrection with everything that's happening in our culture right now, in our society. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do as we're, as we're perceiving and we're saying, yes, Paul, I, I, I hear you in 1 Corinthians 15. I hear what you're saying. Like, Jesus is on the move and he's doing this thing and it's all going to work out in the end. But what do I do right now? I think you and I, we must learn to look for signs of resurrection in the here and now in anticipation of God being all in all. Because the reality is we live suspended in the tension between the devastation of Good Friday and the hope of Easter Sunday. Life for us so often is that holy Saturday space where we, we know death, we're acquainted with death, we've experienced death, but we're just sitting quietly in the space waiting for new life, waiting for hope. And God has a task for us there. And it's to learn, <clears throat> how do I see signs of resurrection now in anticipation of its full coming? And so as Christians... As little Christ, as people who have been taken up by the story of God, we lay claim to the resurrection of King Jesus, not just as a historical reality, a thing that actually happened 2,000 years ago, because I think that's important, but we also learn how to lay claim to it as a personal or an experiential reality. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, not just because it happened, but because I bear witness to it in my life every day. Because to be a Christian is to practice resurrection, as the poet Wendell Berry says. To practice resurrection in the here and now. So much of our active faith, our allegiance, is practicing resurrection. It's assessing our own lives. It's allowing things to die. And then it's coming before the Lord open-handed, waiting to see him breathe new life into these things. And I so often struggle to hold this story as true. Because it's been a minute, and there still seems like there's sin 
and death and brokenness and powers and authorities. All these things still seem to be true, but I recognize that the truth of the story has nothing to do with my intellectual capacity to understand it. It is not contingent upon my emotional capacity to get stirred up by something to feel like it's true. It really is an act of faith that takes discipline to cultivate that commitment to the story of God and to practice resurrection. Not to wait for something to be revealed to me, but to get into it, get into the mix, especially when I don't understand it, especially when I don't have all the answers. How do we train ourselves to be watchers? People who are actively looking at the world, looking for signs of resurrection that we can point to and go, there he is. Oh, there he is. How do we learn how to tell our stories to say, here's how it's played out and is playing out in my life. Here's what resurrection has looked like for me. And that working with the spirit to develop virtue, to develop eyes that see, as Paul says elsewhere in Colossians, learn to be watchful and thankful. Because being a Christian is learning how to think, how to see, and then how to act. And I think as we come to recognize this practicing resurrection, it's not our job to police the world. It's not our job to go around and just point at all of the death necessarily and where everything's going wrong and to wag our fingers at powers and authorities. But our job is to bear witness to the move of God in the here and now in anticipation of all things being restored, renewed, and redeemed. But we've got to start now. Because if we can't see it now, we won't be able to see it then. So I want to give you just a moment or two to come before the Lord in this year, a year of tremendous death, of all of our illusions and all of our hopelessness and our pain and that frustration that it's not over yet. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to remind you, where have I seen signs of resurrection in my own life? What can I lay claim to now that I have witnessed to, that I have participated in, that gives me the courage to believe if he's done it before, he can do it again? Because we need those stories, we need those moments, we need those markers put down in our timelines to give us the courage to move forward. So Holy Spirit, would you come and anoint your dear ones in this space? Would you open us up to our own stories? Give us eyes that see that we might bear witness to the death that we have experienced or are experiencing right now. But that we would also recognize resurrection where new life has bubbled up within us where things have changed, where we no longer live for ourselves, where we've experienced radical, earth-shattering love, where we have seen this new world bursting forth in the old. Lord, speak to each one of us right now, for we are listening.
this has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.